things that we do every Sunday when we come to worship the Lord is, is we study His Word. And we do that because God's Word changes us. It transforms us from the inside out. It renews our minds and it gives us fuel. So let's get some fuel. Let's get some transformation through the Spirit and the Word this morning together. So we're studying Isaiah. I encourage you, this is a long passage. Thank you, Jonathan, for reading it to us this morning carefully and well. We're not going to read it again. I'm just going to be walking through this text. So get God's Word and open it on your lap or in the chair beside you to Isaiah chapter 43 and 44. And uh, let's get ready to, to study His Word together. So when billionaire Elon Musk wants to prove his brilliance, his success, and his wealth. What does he point to? He points to a number of things, including a rocket. Because who else has a rocket, right? He points to Falcon 9 and his SpaceX program designed to fly tourists to outer space and then Come back. Have you seen that rocket land all over again, ready to? It's phenomenal. When Elon Musk wants to put his wealth and his brilliance on display, he points to a rocket. Well, not to be outdone, Jeff Bezos. He doesn't point to Amazon. He says, oh, yeah, I got my own rocket. And in fact, if... If Jeff Bezos were here, he would say, Elon Musk didn't do this first, I did. To which Richard Branson would point to Virgin Atlantic and say, guys, I've been around longer than you have. So here we have these billionaires with SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Atlantic just showing off their ridiculous wealth their brilliance, their success by pointing to something that very few people, in fact, very few nations have a rocket of their own that can fly to outer space and back. Well, I get us thinking about that because here's my question. When God wants to point and prove and display his brilliance, his wealth, his glory. What does he point to? Does God point to the unexplored expanse of the space that these billionaires are trying to explore? How about the uh, unseen depths of the sea or the unimaginable complexities of the of the human body or maybe the unrivaled artistry of nature no he doesn't point to those things according to our sermon text when god wants to prove his glory he points to exhibit a his people 
So look at Isaiah chapter 43 and 44. And I want you to notice that this section begins and ends with a key statement. And it's what frames this pericope. It's what causes this to be one unit, a long unit, a unit divided by about five different paragraphs, five different thoughts, but all under the same key concept. It begins and ends with God saying to his people, quote, you are my witnesses. Look at chapter 43, verse 10. At the beginning, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? He begins this section by declaring about his people and to his people, you are my witnesses. And then he ends the section with that same declaration. Look at chapter 44, verse 8 and 9. The back end, chapter 44, 8. Speaking to his people, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things that they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. God says to his people, you are my witnesses. Now, to be a witness is to give evidence or proof that helps to establish a truth. So just as this rocket stands as the witness of Elon Musk's brilliance and billions... God says to his people, you are the witness, the evidence, the living proof of my glory. He says this at the beginning and at the end and in the middle of this, he explains two ways that he demonstrates and displays his glory through his people. Proof number one, by freeing them from captivity in Babylon. Proof number two, by forgiving their sin. 
you are living proof of my glory. And I'm proving it by freeing you from a superpower that not only has dominated you, but the entire world and cannot be overcome by anyone, but they're nothing to me. They're like grasshoppers. And proof number two, by forgiving your sin. Freedom from captivity. Forgiveness of sin. Christians. What God has said about the nation of Israel here in this text, under the old covenant, applies to us because it's fulfilled through the new covenant and the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of those who are in Christ, God says, you are my witnesses. We as the church, corporately, universally, and individually, we as the church are the living proof of the glory of God. Far more than if a billionaire chose to make your family living proof of his wealth. God chose to demonstrate his brilliance, his wealth, his greatness by creating and sustaining and redeeming the church of which we all get to be part by his grace alone. That's awesome. That's the fuel we're looking for this week. I mean, just consider what that says about God. And consider what it would look like if we lived as witnesses to the glory of this God. So we've already read this sermon text, and I want to show you all of this by walking through the text carefully together. So again, with Bible in your hand, God points to his people as his witness, living proof of his glory, and explains two ways that he will demonstrate his glory through them back then and there and through us here today. Proof number one, God says, I'm going to demonstrate my glory by freeing you from captivity. Freedom from captivity. Look at the beginning of our text, chapter 43, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake, I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, in the ships which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. This section, verse 14 through 21, emphasizes a number of things. First of all, that God will free Israel from Babylon because they are his covenant people. So remember in the context, in the history of what's going on here in Israel, this is future 
Judah is still in Judah right now, but God is prophesied to them that they will be taken into captivity in Babylon by a superpower that's not even the superpower yet. And here he's saying that once they're in captivity, I, God, look there in verse 14, for your sake will send to Babylon and destroy Babylon, and I'm going to do it by making them fugitives in the ships that they rejoice in. I'm going to free you from this superpower. I love the fact that he promises redemption and freedom even before they ever go into captivity in the first place. But God does this because they are his covenant people. Look at verse 14. He says he is your redeemer. He's not just the Holy One, but He's the Holy One of Israel. He says, I'm going to do this for your sake. Verse 15, your Holy One. He is not just the Creator, but He is the Creator of Israel, your King. Again, look in in this section, verse 20. B, I will make a way for my chosen people. Why is God doing this? Because he's their God. They are his people. Look at verse 21. The people whom I formed for myself. So God is freeing them from captivity because they are his covenant people. The second thing that's emphasized here is that God will free Israel with his miraculous power. So verse 14, he says, I'm going to send to Babylon and bring them down using their own ships. Verse 16, he says, I'm going to do this in a similar way like I did with Egypt. So do you see making a way in the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, army and warrior, and they lie down, they can't rise, they're extinguished like a wick. We see some of the uh, the the Egyptian deliverance terminology brought over here and applied to this deliverance here from Babylon. I love verse 18 and 19. Not only will God free Israel with his miraculous power, but God will free Israel again. Verse 18, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth Do you not perceive it? What does God mean when he says, remember not the former things? In fact, the Old Testament's full of commands to remember the former things. Why is he telling them here? I think what he's telling them here is, is don't think that I did that back then and there and I'm never going to do it again. But just like I did back then and there, I'm going to do a new thing now. So just like there was deliverance from Egypt, now there's going to be deliverance again from Babylon. And this text points to a future new deliverance from sin and death through the new covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's doing a new thing in an old way for his people And then finally, look at the end of verse 21. God will free Israel so that, so that they might declare my praise. Delivering 
his people from captivity is how God wants to make a name for himself. Isn't that wonderful? God could make a name for himself however he wanted to do it. But he says, I want to I wanna put my glory on display by making my people free. So what does that say about the glory of God? Deliverance from Babylon says God delights to use his power so that his covenant people can live in freedom rather than oppression. So here's my question to you, church. Do you live in freedom? Or does it feel more like you're being dominated by powerful forces inside of you and outside of you? God wants to make a name for himself by freeing you from those powerful forces. What would it look like to be living proof, to be witnesses of the God who frees his people from captivity? It would look like living as free people, wouldn't it? It would look like rather than being enslaved by the desires of our flesh, we would live in the freedom of the Spirit so that we're marked by love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit in and through us is a witness to the God who frees His people from captivity. Rather than being held captive by man's approval, which is often determined by our stuff or our success or our appearance, Rather than being held captive to what others think of you? If we lived in freedom of God's approval alone, which is fixed and finished in Christ, and it enables us to give ourselves and our stuff away to others, That's what it would look like to live as free people, witnesses of the God who frees his people from captivity. It would look like rather than being oppressed by the fear of death, anxiety about the future, we would live in the freedom of the abundant life that is an eternal life which gives us real peace and real hope today, even in the midst of suffering and sorrow 
and cancer. Now imagine. Imagine a person living today in this world, in this city, in your neighborhood who lives in the freedom bearing the fruit of the Spirit, living for God's approval, and living with real peace and real hope because they've been guaranteed eternal life. That person, that church, the church, is living proof. Living proof of the God who frees his people from captivity. Proof number two. Not only does he prove his glory by freedom from captivity, but in chapter 43, verse 22, through the rest of our sermon text, 44, 23, God has chosen to glorify himself by forgiving our sin. Not just freeing them physically from a physical enemy, Babylon, but by forgiving their sin, by freeing them from the spiritual bondage, the condemnation of his judgment against their and our sin. So this entire section, the rest of 43 and the beginning there of 44, this entire section emphasizes that God has chosen to do this by being gracious to his covenant people. Grace, grace. This section gives four reasons God has chosen to make his name great through grace. And could just we stop for a moment And thank God that he has chosen to make his name great through grace. Aren't you glad? Isn't that good, good news? Four reasons God has chosen to make his name great through grace. The first reason. Chapter 43, verse 22 through 28. Reason for grace number one. God says, I will forgive your sin because, are you ready this? It is my nature to forgive, just like it's your nature to sin. God says, it's my nature to forgive, just like it's your nature to sin. So in the background of this paragraph, you can hear the Lord destroying any thought that Israel might have that he is obligated to free them from captivity and forgive their sin. So look how it begins in 43.22. Are you looking at your Bible? He says, I'm going to free you from Babylon, yet, yet you didn't call upon me, O Jacob. But you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. Israel is weary of God. 
but he's still going to deliver them from Babylon. And in a minute, he's going to promise to forgive them for being weary of him. Look at verse 24. Not only is Israel weary of God, but make no mistake, God is weary with Israel. Huh. Their sin wearies and burdens God. This is, forgiving sin is, is, is not a light and fluffy, easy thing. It's expensive. It's costly. God sacrifices to forgive sin. Look in verse 24. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. But, good news, God will forgive them, verse 25, because of his grace and despite their past and present failures to keep the covenant. This is one of the greatest statements in Scripture. Read it with me, verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Amen. See, the good news of the gospel is that it's God's nature to forgive just as it is our nature to sin. Yes, God is holy. Yes, God is just. But God's nature is not just to squash every sinner like a bug. God's nature from the beginning is to give grace and mercy to sinners who will acknowledge our sin and come to Him for His grace and His mercy. God delights to show grace to sinners, friends. And just like Paul explained in Romans chapter 5, where sin increases, and boy, it does in my life. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. However much sin we have, God has more grace. So what does it look like to live as a witness to the God of grace? It doesn't look like saying, you have more grace than I have sin? I'm going to go out and sin. I can get away with anything. No, Romans chapter 6. Paul finishes the thought and tells us that God's unending storehouse of grace doesn't free us to sin more. It motivates and empowers us to sin less and to live as witnesses of His glory through our obedience and righteousness. Reason for grace number one. I'll forgive your sin because it's my nature to forgive you. Just it's it's your nature to sin. Reason for grace number two. We turn the page to chapter 44 and we look at the first five verses and we see reason for grace number two. And God says, I will forgive your sin in order to fulfill my plan to multiply and bless my people. This has been God's plan from the beginning. 
The creation mandate was that God would create a people, multiply that people, and bless that people. You remember the garden? The very first mandate to Adam and Eve, his people, was be fruitful, multiply, and enjoy the creation. They did for a while, and then they decided to rebel against God, and it was downhill outside the garden ever since. That was the original creation mandate. God's original plan, though, was to create a people, multiply that people, and bless that people. So God promises through Abraham to do what? Create a people, multiply that people, bless that people, and make them a blessing to the rest of the world. The Abrahamic covenant. And here we see in the first five verses, we're going to read in just a moment, the first five verses, we see a foreshadowing of the new covenant that is secured through Jesus Christ. The new covenant in which God does what? He creates a people, he multiplies the people, and he blesses those people and makes the church a blessing to the rest of the world. Not a different covenant but the continuation of God's original plan fulfilled in Christ in an eternal, unbreakable, secure covenant, the new covenant. This is a foreshadowing. So read chapter 44, 1 through 5, and hear the gospel advancing across the face of the earth even right now and what the new covenant gospel is doing. Verse 1, but now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I'm the Lord's. Another one will call on the name of Jacob, and another one will tattoo on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Friends, what we see here is God fulfilling His own original plan to multiply and bless His people. And it happens through the outpouring of God's Spirit that we see in Acts chapter 1. We see the outpouring of God's Spirit making disciples of Jesus all over the earth the offspring of Abraham through the singular offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that many, many will say, I'm the Lord's. Why? Because of His grace alone.
See, the only way that God can fulfill the original covenant or the Abrahamic covenant or the new covenant is by extending grace to sinners. Otherwise, the covenant never gets fulfilled. It just keeps being broken. And so God fulfilled it in Christ, the perfect second Adam. And then all who will come, sinners, broken people who will come to Jesus by faith, receive the grace of God instead of what we deserve in his wrath. Friends, it's not only God's grace that fulfills his own covenant, but it's God's grace that drives and advances the gospel all over the earth. Isn't it what drew you to Jesus? Aren't you a living proof of the grace of God? You're my witnesses of the glory of my grace, God says. What does it look like for Israel or the church, the new Israel? What does it look like to live as the witnesses of of the God who fulfills his plan by extending grace to sinners? It looks like us extending grace to others. It looks like us sharing why we were drawn to Christ in the first place. It looks like us living out the grace that we received. Four reasons God has chosen to make his name great. Not through stars and angels. Certainly not through rockets. But through the church, his people. By graciously forgiving our sin. Four reasons. First of all, because it's God's nature to forgive just as it's our nature to sin. Number two, in order to fulfill his plan to multiply and bless his people. Number three. So chapter 44, verse 6 through 22, a long section. I want to encourage you to go back and read this today. It's profound. It's amazing. 44, 6 through 22. Reason for grace number three. Here it is in a sentence. I will forgive your sin Because I'm the only true God. Because I'm the only true God. If you want to extend that sentence. I will forgive your sin because I am the only true God. And all who trust in their idols will be put to shame. And by put to shame, it means that they invested in something that ended up being a scam. Idolatry, false gods, are a cosmic Ponzi scheme. It will come to nothing and you will be left without anything. You'll be put to shame. But God says, I'm the only rock. I've looked around. I don't see anyone else. Look what he says here in in 44, 6 through 22. He makes a couple of bold statements. First of all, 
Verse 6 and 7, he says, I am the first and the last. I am God. Who's like me? You see that? What a great question. I mean, who, who is like me, God says. I am the first. I am God. Another bold statement. Look at verse 8. You are my witnesses. Specifically, what are we witnesses to here? Verse 40, or chapter 44, verse 8. You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. See, Israel is living proof, a witness that God is a solid rock who always keeps his promises, who remains faithful regardless of our unfaithfulness. Isn't that the history of Israel? Isn't that the history of the church? And isn't that your personal history? So I am God, you are my witnesses. And then verse 9 through 20, look at this. In contrast, look at verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things that they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses, the witnesses of the idols, neither see nor know that they have been put to shame. Three times... The witnesses of the idols, the false gods, verse 9, are put to shame. 11a, all his companions are put to shame. 11b, they will be put to shame together. God is emphasizing here that you are trusting something that is nothing. It's a scam. It's absurd. So he goes on to explain how absurd idolatry is, and he does it with beautiful imagery. I mean, just read this this afternoon. He says, a guy goes out into the forest, he picks out a cedar or a cypress or an oak, he cuts it down, he uses half of it to build himself a fire, cook himself a cake, and then with the other half, he gets out his pencil and his plane and his tools, and he makes himself a god. And he bows down to the other half of the wood that he cut down. And he cries out to the God and says, deliver me. God says, how absurd. Do you know why why idolatry is so absurd? Because we have to make our God first. So we know, don't we? We know. That idols made of wood and iron are nothing but a delusion. And that they'll disappoint people in the end. We know that. But what about those who, who look to wealth for their security? Who really feel good about life when your bank account's black? And if you don't have enough money, then it's nothing but anxiety and fear. As if God doesn't even exist. As if you're not God's people. What about those who look to success for their identity? You want to know who I am? I'm a success because I do this. I built this. I am this. See my rocket? 
rather than looking to God for our identity. And whatever it is in which we find our identity is nothing but a half a piece of wood that we've fashioned into an idol. What about those who look to their family as their ultimate purpose in life? I exist for my kids. Look, your kids are important, but they're not ultimate. God is. And we make little gods out of our children. The idols we make for ourselves will deceive us and disappoint us in the end every time. But God is the only rock. He's the only rock that can handle the weight of your life and your hopes and dreams. So in contrast to those who fashion their own idols, God finishes this reason with an awesome statement in verse 21 and 22. In contrast, God says, remember what's true about you, Israel. Now remember how he just described those who make their idols. Now read verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. Are you ready? I formed you. That's the big difference between the one true and living God and every other idol and false god. We make them but God made us. Second statement. You will not be forgotten by me. Unlike the idols that cannot deliver you, even when you beg and plead and pray, I will not forget you. I see you in Babylon. I see you there in your bed suffering from cancer. I see you in your hardship. I see you in your relational difficulties. I see you in your pain and depression, and I will not forget you. Third statement, verse 22. Unlike the idols that can't hear your prayers... I have forgiven you. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. And your sins, they're gone like a mist. Blotted out. And then look how he ends it in verse 22. To Israel who is weary of him, to Israel who hasn't even gone into the judgment that they deserve yet, to Israel, Judah, his people, God says, return to me, for I have redeemed you. See, God holds out this promise of redemption. He holds out his grace, his grace, and he calls people to return to me. Return from your weariness to wholehearted worship. For those who have wandered away, especially those who grew up in a Christian home and have now walked away from the Lord, 
This is a call to you. Return to this gracious and faithful God. He's the only rock that can hold the weight of your life. Every other pursuit. Every other philosophy will let you down. Reason for grace number four. Why has God chosen to glorify himself by forgiving his people? Why has God chosen to make a name for himself by grace? Answer number one. Because it's God's nature to forgive, just as it's our nature to sin. Answer number two, in order to fulfill his plan to multiply and bless his people. Answer number three, because he's the only true God and everyone who trusts in their idols are going to be put to shame. Answer number four. God says, I will forgive your sin for the joy of the whole earth. If God doesn't fulfill his promise to redeem his people, if God doesn't bring his grace to bear to forgive sinners, then all creation is doomed to be under the curse forever. But verse 23 tells us it's not just a response of the earth. It's the reason God redeems his people by grace. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. Why? For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. That's not just a response of the whole earth to the redemption of his people. But it's the reason God forgives his people in the first place. Because all of creation has been subjected to the curse because of us. In our father Adam, he brought sin on everything. And ever since then, Romans chapter 8 tells us that all of creation has been groaning and waiting for the redemption that comes when God's redeemed are adopted by grace and made sons of God again. God says, I'll forgive your sin for the joy of the heavens and the earth and the mountains and the forests down to every tree in it. Friends, when God wants to show his brilliance, his wealth, his glory, he points to exhibit A, the church. Corporately, you personally. Proof number one, in Christ, God has freed us from captivity. And in Christ, God has forgiven us our sin. And now we live as his witnesses. 
I don't know what kind of fuel you needed this morning, but that lit my fire this week. I'm glad I came to church today. Praise God. Amen. Let's pray together. God of grace, we thank you. We thank you that you have made a way of salvation and redemption. You have made a way to make everything new, including us, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you've opened our eyes to this grace. Thank you that you have given us the knowledge of your grace, the revelation of your character in your word. And I pray that as those who have received your grace, we would live as constant living proof of your grace to others. That you would gain glory, that you would make a name for yourself through our church, through each of our lives. And I pray that you would multiply and bless more through our children and our neighbors and our co-workers. Do this for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.